Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered chumpacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With a new podcast every day of the Premier League season, this is Football Social Daily. Just one more sleep to go until the big man slides down your chimney, hoovers up your mince pies and brings everyone joy when he leaves. But I'm not talking about Steve Bruce. Christmas is upon us and so too is the festive fixture schedule. Ah. Boxing Day, football is a time-honoured British tradition and we're here to preview all of the fixtures on Football Social Daily. People like to plan what to watch on the telly during Christmas with a thick copy of the Radio Times, but there's no need for that because I can tell you now that there is a perfect three-parter in the Premier League title race on the 26th of December. 12.30, Liverpool versus Leeds. 3 o'clock, Man City take on Leicester. And at 5.30, Chelsea travel to Villa Park. If that's enough to spread Christmas cheer, then our Scrooge-like selections will bring you down to earth with Newcastle facing Manchester United, Norwich hosting Arsenal and Burnley taking on Everton in the relegation mix-up. Merry Christmas and welcome along to your daily Premier League show, Football Social Daily. I'm Niall McCorn. I'll be steering the sleigh today and alongside me, my two helpers, Marley Anderson and Jim Salverson. How are you doing, guys? Ho, ho, ho. Very good, thank you. Although I thought this was supposed to be the season of goodwill, and yet we're still slagging off Steve Bruce. He's, he's poor lad's been out of a job for a month, and he's still having a go at him for the podcast. There's a lot of similarities, though, isn't there? Yeah, I, I was going to say that. I think that was my favourite in, in, uh, intro of the year, to be honest. I think you've saved the best till almost last. I was going to make a joke about you being Rudolph Marley, because you always seem to have a red nose, but um, I didn't think that was fair. So we'll, we'll move on. And before well, we I did... Get- I did eat a reindeer when I was in Iceland, so... <laughs> not supposed to say that. I thought, like Jim says, I thought we're supposed to be spreading the Christmas cheer. Not talking about eating Christmas animals, but before we get stuck into the podcast, it is worth mentioning we aren't actually recording this on Christmas Eve. By the time you listen to this, me and Marley are probably halfway through a case of beer, but it's worth mentioning that at the time of recording the show, the message from the Premier League amidst COVID is to keep calm and carry on with all matches being considered on and on a case-by-case basis when it comes to postponements. So as we are right now recording the show, all 10 of the games we're about to talk about are on. So let's press on and start at the top of the tree. Hope you like what I did there. Uh, Manchester City against Leicester is where we'll begin at the Etihad on uh, Boxing Day afternoon, 3 o'clock. City looking to maintain their lead at the top of the Premier League table. Leicester are inconsistent this season, I think that's fair to say. It all points towards a Manchester City win with the way things are going at the moment, but they always seem to find it tough against the Foxes, Marley. Uh, yeah, they do. Um, it's 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 one of them games. I don't quite. I still don't know where Leicester are as a team. I keep expecting them to be better um, than they are, but they don't seem to be improving any time sort of quickly. Um, and if there's one time you need to find what you're about, it's when you go away to Man City um, on Boxing Day. You know, Man City don't seem to be too. Um, 
affected by this the, this COVID outbreak. Whether that'll come or not, I don't know. With you know families mixing over Christmas and returning possible positive tests on Boxing Day morning or whatever, we don't know that yet. But as it stands, um, Man City aren't one of the teams badly affected. Leicester have been, and on top of that, they've got injury worries and they've had defensive injuries all all season. Johnny Evans has been in and out. Fafana's injured. Soonchu's turned to a player who who just is a shadow of with what he was last season and the season before. Um so I think it's 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 a tough ask for for Leicester because they know mm. that at their best they can beat Man City. They did it in the uh in the cup final not so long ago, didn't they? Um in the Carabao. Was yeah, it the Carabao? The FA Community Cup? Shield, I think. Sorry, it's community shield, yes. Um mm. you know, but they know they can they can hit that height. Um but at the minute it looks like a very, very tall order because Man City are a, are a train with no brakes, um, and Leicester are sort of laying on the tracks with the hands tied. I think. Yeah, it's a good analogy to use, and the only thing that will put the brakes on Manchester City would be those COVID cases. And actually, as we hurtle towards 2022, I think I saw a late contender for the worst take of the year on social media. A real late entry from a Liverpool fan saying that it's suspicious that City have no positive cases. Are they even (laughs) testing their players? I mean, what goes through some people's heads when they tweet this stuff, honestly? That could only have come from a fan base of one club. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, a Liverpool fan, of course. Um, Let's talk about Grealish and Foden. We've mentioned them on the podcast this week. Got a bit of a slap on the wrist from Pep Guardiola, Jim, for their misdemeanours. They went on a night out, lo and behold, a 26-year-old and a 21-year-old, after two years of lockdowns and pandemics, decided to go and enjoy themselves. Could you believe it? Obviously, I can understand the unprofessionalism and Pep Guardiola's frustrations. And they were left out of the recent game against Newcastle. But do you think they'll play here against Leicester, Jim? Have they learned their lesson, do you think? Yeah, they've learned their lesson. and I don't think Pep Guardiola was being particularly truthful in the fact he was upset by their antics because they didn't really do much. They went out and had their photo taken. I don't think there was any evidence that they'd been on the beers or doing anything that you wouldn't expect two young lads to do. And I think one of the problems we have at the moment with the world and how it is, is a picture appears in the paper of a professional footballer on a night out. And if you believe the back pages of the likes of the Daily Mail, the world explodes because of it. And I think it's then down to the manager to kind of placate those those emotions that are coming from the fans about professionals not being professional, when in fact they've not really done much wrong. So... He says they were dropped for the game against Newcastle. I've got a feeling they were probably were going to be rested anyway. And there was no chance of them playing. We've got this heavy fixture congestion on the way. And Manchester City are in this luxurious position. And I think we talk about COVID cancellations and fixture congestion. There are very few teams that are better placed to handle that than Manchester City. If they get game cancelled and they have to play three games in a week, they're probably in the best position to do so because they've got that strength and depth. So I don't know whether... There will there was a genuine upset about the behaviour of Grealish and Foden uh, on this particular incident. We've both seen them involved in indiscretions before, obviously. So I'm a hundred percent sure. Yeah, I think they'll both feature against Leicester in this one. And I, to build on Marley's point as well, he doesn't really know where Leicester City are at at the moment. I actually think if you look at the league table right now, there's no one on that league table that isn't a million miles away from where you'd kind of expect them to be or where they deserve to be. And I think Leicester City have a bit of a challenge that with the injuries they've had and the players that are dropping off the likes of Jamie Vardy, who is a year older and is showing that a little bit this season, I think they've dropped off a little bit, whereas other teams have stepped up and that's where they find themselves. I don't think there is going to be a massive change of fortune for them I don't think they're going to suddenly get it together I think they've just found their level I think the issue with Leicester City has just been defensively losing Fofana was a big blow you mentioned the injuries Suyuncu hasn't returned the same player since his Turkey team were embarrassed at the Euros and they've just been really really leaky at the back I think going forward and scoring goals even with Vardy not being as as uh, prolific as he normally is. I still think with with Dakar and with Madison and with Harvey Barnes, they've got enough potential to score goals. But if you can't keep it tight at the back, you're going to struggle. And, you know, that's the case that we've seen against teams like Napoli and even the Manchester United game where they won 4-2, they still conceded two. And I think the statistics show that they've conceded two a game for the last four or five weeks. And that's a, not a record you want to be keeping up if you want any hope of winning, particularly against Man City. 
No, completely. I mean, they, they they do feel like they're in a bit of a transition at the moment. They've got new players coming through that they're hoping are going to carry the torch. The likes of Dakar up front. They've got injuries at the back, and they're bringing younger players through into the squad. So I think for Leicester City fans, they've been so fortunate in recent years with the success they've experienced. They just need to be patient, and if they truly trust Brendan Rodgers as the manager, he now has the job of reshaping them and rebuilding that side to a certain extent so they can achieve again but for this game you just think Man City are unstoppable at the moment uh, it'd be I mean I, I, I'm terrified of what they'd be like if they had an out and out striker if they signed Harry Kane in the summer where exactly would they be in the title race because they just have so much talent all over the pitch I mean you, you can't talk about it too much can you the amount of ability and talent that's in that Manchester City squad and they just look unstoppable this season even when you've got the likes of Liverpool and Chelsea who are both superb this year by the way but they're just not at the same level of Manchester City are well I tell you where City would be they'd be top exactly like where they are now even if they had Harry Kane um, I think they'd probably still be top with the way things are going but it's never easy against Leicester City particularly at the Etihad Leicester beat them there a couple of seasons ago and in the reverse fixture at King Power Stadium this season it was a close game between these two sides even with Leicester City's inconsistencies so Man City against Leicester three o'clock on Boxing Day before that you can warm up with a starter of Liverpool versus Versus Leeds, 12.30, early kickoff on Boxing Day. Jurgen Klopp has lamented the fixture schedule and the COVID issues, Marley, and he 100% has a point, as we've discussed already on the show this week. But now that the message from the Premier League is to just plough on, keep calm and continue amidst COVID, does he just need to get on with it, do you think? Well, he loves a moan, doesn't he? Old, uh, old Norbert, old Jurgen <laughs> Norbert Klopp. He's uh, surprised moaning isn't his middle name. Um <laughs> He is a bit of a misery at times, but you know, all managers moan about this, don't they? they all the fixture congestion and they all act as though they want to, yeah. you know, protect the players and all this, but they'll all take the money, um, which comes from the TV companies, which produce the the fixture lists and stuff. So it's, you know, it all comes sort of in one hand and, and then they pass out these, these things of, oh, we need to keep the players safe and stuff. But the message has been the same and it's been... It's 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 worse in England than any other country because a lot of players, a lot of countries take uh, winter breaks and things like that. But you know that before you come to the Premier League, so you know that it's gonna be three games in in six day, six days or seven days or whatever it might be over the Christmas period. It's been happening for for fifty, sixty years, maybe more. Um, so why you know why why I'm worried about it now? Um, it's a quirk of English football, isn't it? It doesn't really happen anywhere else in Europe. I don't know about the rest of the world, but. You know, it's a case of if you want less games, just stop winning because the more you win, the more games you've got. It's the sign of a successful team. <laughs> I yeah, I I just think um, it's one of the niche things that makes English football proper. Like Boxing Day is probably the most um, iconic day of football in in the calendar. Everyone looks at who mm. you've got on Boxing Day, um, mm. and it's sort of the first fixture you look for. Other than if your rivals are in the league, and you you look for that one first, and then you look at Boxing Day and think. I'm off work that day. I'm off work the day after probably as well because everyone books that that middle time off after Christmas. Can I go to that game and have a few drinks and see the family and stuff and all the rest of it? But you know, is I I like it because it gives it puts pressure on squads uh, and you find out what what teams are made of. Um, unfortunately for Leeds, they're made, they're made of spit and sawdust at the minute and a bunch of youth teamers. <laughs> um, so I can't see them doing doing too much um, against Liverpool. But you know. One of the the advantages of being a big club with lots of resources is lots of really really good players, and you know Liverpool have have shown that they're going to lose Andy Robertson for a, for a game now. Simakas has looked excellent when he's been uh, in the team this season. Um, he's looked like a a guy who can get into probably most Premier League teams the way he's been playing. But Andy Robertson happens to be one of the best left backs in in the country. So you're looking at that and thinking, well, if that's your level of depth, you shouldn't have any any real problems. Um, you can bring Firmino in, who hasn't played for a few weeks. He's fully fit after injury again. You can bring in, uh, you know, um, Oxley Chamberlain, Milner, all these players. You know, they, there's plenty there. And then if you want to look at how it can affect teams otherwise, uh, in, in sort of the, the opposite direction, you look at Leeds and you think who they've got to put out. And there's a, an 18-year-old kid playing in, you know this ridiculously fast-paced game that he's having to get used to on the on mm. the fly, having to play this brave sort of way that Bielsa plays, um, and try and make it stick. And you're looking at Leeds and thinking, 
there's an obvious reason why you've conceded 10 or 11 goals in your last two games because yep. the whole thing just doesn't add up to a, a winning team. Baptism of fire for those young players of Leeds, that's for sure. As for Jurgen Klopp, Marley's right, no Andy Robertson after he was sent off against Spurs. That game finished 2-2 between Tottenham and Liverpool last time out, which means that Liverpool are three points off the top of the table, chasing Manchester City, who lead the way as things stand. As for Leeds, their focus is more on the bottom end of the table, Jim. Marley's right, they've had loads of injuries, they've cobbled together a team in the last couple of weeks, but... Aside from that, they look like serious relegation candidates at the moment. They've got more points on the board than some of their rivals, but in terms of the way they're playing, it's looking pretty grim for them. Bielsa, we know, is an absolute legend at Leeds for what he's done, getting them back up to the Premier League, and everyone absolutely loves him over uh, in Leeds. But how much pressure pressure is he under? Because as, as great as he's been for them, he's not immune to, to criticism. And, you know, with the Premier League as brutal as it is, he's also not immune from the sack. I don't think it feels like he is under pressure at the moment, but I wonder what those conversations are like that are happening at the top level at Leeds at the moment, because the thing that Leeds need to do is exactly the thing that Bielsa will not do, because they can't play Bielsa's type of football with the players that they currently have available. As we've discussed many times before, he relies on this one-on-one system right the way through the team where each player has to win their personal battles with one member of the opposition and if all the players that are on that pitch win their battle and work harder and outperform that member of the opposition Leeds United win the game it's kind of that simple well it's not that simple at all but that's a pretty decent way to explain it I think but when you're playing a certain amount of youth team players or second string players because of the injuries that Leeds have at the moment that just isn't going to be an effective tactic they kind of almost need to win the war of attrition at the moment and scrape as many points as possible while they are suffering with these injuries but Bielsa isn't a flexible manager. He plays the way he plays, and I can't see that changing. So at some point, if it continues, the Leeds United board are going to have a decision to make. Do they want to stick with Bielsa? Is he the future of Leeds? Do they mind if he takes them down and takes them back up again? Or do they twist and stay in the Premier League and maybe get one of the old war horses that are known for picking up points against the odds? I think it's a good point you make, but I think it's probably a greater point as to... How sustainable is the Marcelo Bielsa style of play? I mean, we know Pep Guardiola plays an intense style. Jurgen Klopp plays an intense mm. style. But for these players that you know, have been championship players, some of them have even been you know, League One players in the not-too-distant past, you know, how much intensity it, it, does it take to play that system? Well, A, the answer is a lot. And B, how sustainable is that? Because you know, we talk about pr- the Premier League being one of the most physically demanding divisions in top flight football across the world is it just a natural product of this is now their third or fourth season under Marcelo Bielsa and it was inevitable that players were going to fatigue particularly with the lack of break that many of them have had uh, over the last 18 months yeah I think that's a fair point because it is a really high intensity style of football that he plays and you probably not only need fit players with high stamina levels, but you probably also need a squad depth that Leeds United just don't have. And I've got a mate who's a Leeds fan who for a long time has bemoaned the lack of depth in their squad, and now it's really coming home to roost. And you look at a lot of the injuries that Leeds United have got at the moment. Now, there's two questions around a lot of the injuries they've got. They've got a lot of muscular injuries. I think it's hamstrings that three or four players are out with hamstring injuries. And you kind of go, is that the intensity of the games or is there something wrong with the training or with the preparation they're making because quite often when you see a lot of very similar injuries it can be down to something as simple as the training pitch there's a fault in it the 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 undercore isn't quite as hard or soft as it needs to be or something along those lines so there is issues or there are issues that need to be addressed there and if Leeds can become a team that are spending their third fourth fifth season in the Premier League then surely they will invest in that playing squad and they will bring in more players who can play at the same level and can work to Bielsa's um, ideas. But I guess they, un- unlike the Leeds of old, they've been relatively conservative with their spending this time round. And they haven't bought in a huge amount of players and invested massively in the squad that arguably Bielsa needs to compete this season. 
Well, they've lost their last three games in a row, the same as Norwich, the same as Newcastle and the same as Watford. In fact, Watford have lost the last four in a row. So in terms of form, it's not looking good. They've also played more games than the majority of the rest of their relegation rivals. They're on 16 points, which at the moment is a five point buffer to the relegation zone. But Burnley do have some games in hand. Leeds United are not clear of it by any stretch of the imagination. And they face a really difficult test this Boxing Day against Liverpool. That one's a 12.30 kickoff and we'll zoom now to the 5.30 start in the Premier League in part three of this title race over Boxing Day, Aston Villa hosts Chelsea. Now, this is interesting when it comes to Chelsea because I think that there could they could be at risk of being out of the title race before Christmas or indeed before the new year, Marley, if they lose any more ground. They've lost ground in terms of drawing games rather than losing them recently. Is this, as strange as it sounds, possibly the biggest game of Chelsea's season so far? They have to win to keep pace with the top two. Yeah, I think they do. Yeah, um, if if they continue to to drop points, I think it's it's a huge gap to to uh, make up on on any team, but ones that are as good as Liverpool and Man City at the top. We know they're relentless. We know they can we they can sort of have this um, consistency at the at the very very highest level because um, they've done it in the past and they've they've only got better since then. So you're looking at uh, at this and you're saying Chelsea away at Villa with all kinds of COVID cases. Uh, Villa are doing really well under Gerrard so far. I think they've only lost one game and that was uh, by one goal to Liverpool, which not many teams have, have even come within one goal of getting anything against Liverpool this season. Um, so you're looking at Villa saying they're on the up. Chelsea are, are definitely on the slide. Um and it just depends who's back for Chelsea. I think they desperately need um, Kante, Jorginho or Kovacic to come back and be somewhere near 80% fit because Kante came back very early from his knee injury the last game. Um, mm. I think Tuchel ended up with this bizarre quote like it was almost inhumane to play him or something, even though he was the man who wrote his name in the team sheet. Um and then so Kovacic off the bench as well the other day when he's been out with COVID and a long-term injury and it's almost like he was kind of thrown into it because they had no one else. Yeah, it's, you know, he's, the things he's doing don't really back up, you know, the, the injuries that are that are there. Um, he's asking a lot of his squad, but I think he feels like that's necessary. I think this whole, um, he, he desperately wants to keep the system, which means he needs the two centre midfielders. He can't go down to one holding midfielder and... And a, uh, or two holding midfielders and an attacking midfielder, it's it's more uh, physical than that. So it it just depends who's back for for Chelsea. But I wouldn't be surprised if Villa took something. Um, the way the two teams are going, it it seems like the the logical thing to to suggest that Villa would get at least a point at home to mm. Chelsea, who haven't won in the last four or five games. Yeah, Villa have only lost to Liverpool and Man City since Gerrard came in. So I wonder whether the top three will make it three defeats for Gerrard since his arrival at Aston Villa. Or, or maybe not. As you say, they've been solid but unspectacular. They've done what they've needed to do, but I don't think they've blown anyone away. They've just been a lot harder to beat. And I suppose my question on Villa, Jim, was what has he changed, Stephen Gerrard? What's he done differently to what... Dean Smith couldn't do but if you look at the statistics Villa had lost five in a row when Dean Smith got sacked Gerard comes in they start winning games and they're harder to beat I guess that's the crux of it don't you think <laughs> yeah well done nailed it pretty much I mean there seems to be a little bit more belief in that Aston Villa squad than there were when before Dean Smith left and maybe that was a sign of just the rot setting in and that idea that sometimes you just need fresh ideas and need a fresh impetus. I'll be honest with you, I've not seen enough of Aston Villa to go, this is what they're doing differently, but they don't seem to concede as many goals and they seem to score more goals, which is kind of the secret, isn't it? And the players that weren't playing particularly well, so the likes of Buendia, who came in from Norwich in the summer and really underperformed against, uh, underperformed under Dean Smith, seem to be at the races now. So not spectacular from... Steven Gerrard but at the same time that's kind of what you want there's this idea that you get a new manager bounce and players run through brick walls etc etc when a new boss comes in but actually what you want to see in reality is slow steady progress and that is what Steven Gerrard is bringing to Aston Villa at the moment and that is a really positive sign it's a sign that he is making progress and he's in there for the long term but in terms of 
what they're doing differently on the pitch at the moment. You'd have to ask someone a little bit more qualified than me, I think. Aston Villa 10th at the moment, heading into this game with Chelsea. 22 points, level on points with Leicester in 9th and just three behind Wolves in 8th. And they can go level with Wolverhampton Wanderers uh, if they win and Wolves do not. So that's the way things are looking in terms of Villa. What about Chelsea? Well, they're third and six points off leaders, Manchester City. And as I said before, it feels like this game is massive for them in the context of their title pursuit. So that's how it looks at the top of the table. What about the bottom? We'll take a look at those Boxing Day games and how it impacts the bottom half of the Premier League next here on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to the show. Hope you're enjoying your festive period. This is the preview for the Boxing Day games here on Football Social Daily. We are recording this before Christmas Eve. You'll be listening to this on Christmas Eve, but we're recording it beforehand. So at the moment, all of these games that we're talking about are still going ahead. That might change. The Premier League is set to look at each game on a case-by-case basis when it comes to possible postponements due to coronavirus. But as we are at the moment, it's all steam ahead. And we'll focus now on the fight at the bottom of the table to stay in the division. And we'll begin at St. James's Park, where Newcastle United welcome Manchester United. This one actually takes place on Monday the 27th. It's an 8pm kickoff. Who better to talk about Newcastle on Football Social Daily than our resident Toon fan, Marley Anderson, how dire is the situation at Newcastle at the moment, Marley? Just how worried are the fans about relegation? Um, from from what I've seen, I don't think the you know the overriding emotion when you're in the in the bottom three amongst the fan base is usually uh, depression and, and you know inevitability that you're going down. But I think spirits around Newcastle are still high because we still see what Eddie Howe's trying to do. We still see a more positive. Um, approach to games we see the the team trying to play football um more possession i think we dominated um i think when we i mean yeah we lost the game 4-0 to leicester but we had more possession which was just bizarre <laughs> oh, wow. it, but honestly yeah, want, but, it? yeah but under under bruce we'd have lost that game 4-0 and had 22 percent possession like we've seen that over the over the course so it's a it's a suggestion that things are changing um, there's a lot more individual performances. <laughs> You're just getting smashed with more of the ball yeah. than you ever thought. <laughs> yeah. We've just got to learn how to defend, basically. Um, that's what it comes right. down to. Um, you know, we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot a lot recently, and that that will happen in under uh, such a drastic change in style. But there's been enough performances that are that are sort of encouraging. Um, Jamal Lewis was playing really well before he got injured. Um, Joe Linton's now actually playing really well in in the last six games he's been probably the best player on the pitch for for our our side in that uh, in that period um i seen something the other day that said uh, it's the most newcastle united thing ever to spend 40 million pounds on a striker and have him turn into one of the best uh, midfield enforcers we've seen in the past 15 years because <laughs> he's uh, <laughs> he's playing this really combative center midfield almost role of like first line of defense but he seems to be great at it, so long may that continue. But we're just waiting for the, the fixture list to, to ease out a bit because we've had Liverpool, Leicester, Man City in our last three games. Uh, now we play Man United. Um, and then I think after that, it's uh, I think we've got Everton, then a cup game, and then like Watford, Burnley and Leeds in, in the three games after that. So you've got to target which games you're realistically going to win. Um, I think we've got more chance against Man United than we did against City or Liverpool. Um, we're still not quite sure how they're gonna how they're gonna sort of level out under Rangnick. Um, they've not been free free scoring recently, um, but Ronaldo and Man United in particular love scoring against Newcastle. It's it's just a thing they do. Um, I think we it was Sod's law that we were the first team to welcome back Ronaldo when he scored uh, on his debut a couple of times. Um, in a game we actually should have done a lot better in, but we didn't take our chances. So hopefully they'll the team will learn from that. Um, and start to improve because you know the fact that you know we just mentioned Leeds just before before the break there and Leeds are playing awful and they're still five five or six points ahead of us and you can't believe how bad Leeds are playing and they're not in the bottom three so that's a uh, a carrot that you need to to aim for sort of thing and pull Leeds into that mix and make it make it a point or two points gap um, as quickly as possible and have them start sweating and thinking about making a decision on changing the manager or 
doing something drastic in the transfer market and make them panic a little bit. Watford are there for the taking as well, so I don't think this is cut and dry yet, even though the gap is is five or six points. Yeah, we'll talk about those other sides later on in the show, but you mentioned Ronaldo a moment ago. He's back in training at Carrington. Of course, Manchester United have had a number of players uh, out with COVID, and hence their last two games have been called off. Before we discuss that, you mentioned about Joel Linton turning into a central midfield player. I suppose when you were growing up, on a bit of a sidetrack here, Jim, watching football, Brazilians would have been known for their silky skills and stepovers and speed and pace, whereas now I think of Brazilian players, the best defensive midfielders are all Brazilian. You know, you look at Fabinho, Fernandinho, Fred, Marquinhos. Fred. They're all they're all good players. Um Casemiro is fuming that you've left him out of that. Oh, I forgot. See, there we go. (laughs) I forgot about him. That's me. That's my Premier League bias there, Marley. Um, (laughs) It's almost like we've seen a bit of a shift culturally from Brazil when it comes to them and the players they develop. It's a bit of a a side tact, but I guess that's that's what I took out of that conversation when it came to Jarlinton. Can I just say I don't think I don't think that's the case. I disagree with you there because I think Brazilian have always had enforcers in their team. And you look back to the Brazilian squad of the 1970s, uh, that, which wasn't in my lifetime, by the way. Hell, that's 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah, but you look back to that, and they've always had pl- they've always had players who would crunch your midfield, who would put a tackle in. Centre backs as well. They've always had players that did that, that allowed the talented, the silky players to play. The difference is now, I think the Premier League has become such a product that they don't just dip into the market to bring in the silky Brazilian who can get you 20 goals a season or can bring you those assists. They're now looking to bring the best from every continent. So you just see more of it now. But I think those those players have always existed in Brazilian football. Yeah, I suppose that's a fair point. I don't watch enough of Brazilian football, but I guess from what I've been exposed to, that would be my takeaway. Uh, Let's rewind back to Manchester United. And as I said, they had their last two games postponed due to coronavirus cases within the squad. The training ground at Carrington had to be shut down for a period of time just to kind of ease the spread of the virus. They only had seven available players for their recent game against Brentford, which was, of course, postponed. So a huge issue there. How big an opportunity is this for Newcastle? Jim, with those Manchester United players likely having only had a couple of days on the training ground after a significant period away from training due to COVID? I don't know if it is an opportunity for Newcastle because you could look at it that way. You could look at it saying they've had time away from the team, they're not ready for matches, etc. And you could look at it and go, They've had two weeks without competitive football. They've got fresh legs. Yeah, but I know this isn't the same, but how can you say that they've got fresh legs? I've played five aside a day after having the flu and I felt horrendous. Mm. It was awful. And it's just, I know it's only five aside, but you know we don't know how ill these Manchester United players were, but they all had cases and they were still away from the training ground for, for 10 days. Me, I mean, before we started recording the show, me and Marley were talking about darts and Marley hasn't played darts for about, what, two weeks, three weeks? And he's probably going to, next time he throws a dart, be like he's never thrown one in his life. It's <laughs> like anything. If you practice it every day, you, you know, you naturally you're going to be good at it. I'm not saying that Man United's players are going to have forgotten how to play football fundamentally, but surely being away from the training ground for seven, eight days is going to have an impact. Yeah, I'm sure it will. But I, I don't know whether it will have enough of an impact to really give Newcastle United the opportunity because... As we've already covered, they have been woeful this season and Manchester United still have enough talent and enough ability to really seriously hurt them. And they've failed to get points on so many occasions against so many lesser teams this season. I don't see why that the fact that there's been a few positive cases of COVID in the Manchester United camp. And like you say, we don't know how serious those cases were. People test positive without any symptoms at all. So without knowing that, it's difficult to kind of say, well, this is a the door's wide open for Newcastle United here. I think, sadly, for Newcastle, it's going to be another case of damage limitation and trying not to, well, I was going to say protect their goal difference, but their goal difference is so fucking awful. There's nothing to protect. <laughs> well, I mean, in all fairness with the COVID thing, I didn't want to talk about it too much because it's going to dominate the schedule over the next two or three weeks. But when you've got players like Kevin De Bruyne, who've 
contracted COVID and says he just hasn't felt the same since and still struggling with it, then I think that just goes to show just how much of an impact it can have on elite athletes. But it's very hit and miss. I mean, there's no way of telling who's going to feel worse for wear and who isn't. But that's the situation at the moment. Newcastle against Manchester United at St. James's Park is an evening kickoff, 8pm on Monday the 27th, so the day after Boxing Day. Back to the Boxing Day games now, though, and Norwich City in the relegation fight as well. Level on points with Newcastle United currently propping up the table. And at Carrow Road, they host Arsenal. They do have a game in hand over the Magpies. If they win, that's huge pressure on Newcastle United. But let's face it, they're not going to win against Arsenal, are they, Jim? Well, Arsenal have discovered the secret to their season that they were looking for all this time. And that secret turned out to be dropping Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. We've talked for a while about the problems that Arsenal have in terms of attitude and bad eggs in the camp. And it could be that Aubameyang was one of those bad eggs and actually taking him out of the team has galvanised them slightly because they seem to have found a little bit of form since he's departed. And not that they were in terrible form, certainly at home before that, but it just feels like it is a step too far for Norwich City, who have already conceded um, the goal difference is something like minus 25, minus 26. So and they haven't scored that many. So it's difficult to see how they'll find a way past. Arsenal, they've scored the fewest. Are... They've scored eight and they've conceded 34. So there are teams who have conceded more goals than them. But again, it's up the other end that their problems are as well as defensively. Yeah. And it's hard to see him scoring against Arsenal as well, because Ramsdale, despite all the criticism we gave him when he signed for Arsenal, has been absolutely superb between the sticks for them as well. So it's difficult all over the park for Norwich to see it just doesn't feel like they've got enough to beat anyone in the Premier League this season, let alone Arsenal, who are currently sitting in those Champions League places and deservedly so. Yeah, it just comes down to quality, doesn't it? Norwich do have a game in hand over Newcastle, as I say, but they've still got um, two games more than Burnley, who have only played 15. We'll come on to Burnley in a second in the context of the bottom three. But as for Arsenal, Jim's right, you know, They've not been spectacular. They've won 10, but they've lost six games this season. And they're still in the top four by virtue of four points ahead of West Ham. So it's one of those strange seasons where it still feels like anything can happen. And as Jim says, no Aubameyang for Arsenal, it seems like is going to be the case this weekend, much like it was midweek against Sunderland. Do you think that's him done now, Marley? Is that it for him at the Emirates? Or do you think that there'll be a curveball and he'll start getting into the squad again? Uh, it seems like it. I would... I would, if I had to bet on whether he would stay or go, I would probably lean towards go. Um, he's had a few little sort of near misses and uh, things in his past. You know, you, you often see him liking opposition posts on Instagram, which always winds me up. Like, because um, he, you know, he's friends with, I don't know, like a Spurs player or something, and Spurs beat Arsenal. He'll like their post, and he, I think we've seen it when uh, Man United beat them. He liked. Ronaldo's post and I just think it's it's very typical of Arsenal like the we always criticize them for having a a bit of a soft underbelly and a bit of a um a toxic core and you're seeing that a lot of the time with Aubameyang and I think he's he's probably gone one step too far I think the the season he had last year I think he signed that deal didn't he then he had a shocking season uh last year where he only scored about six or eight goals all season in all competitions um, this season he's doing slightly better, but has, has upset the the boss with with his uh, personal leave. Whether it might have been justified or not, we we've got to just take it as Arteta doesn't want him anymore. He's had enough. Um, I think it's time for Arsenal to move on without him. Um, he's he's a hell of a player, but spending probably a quarter of a million pound a week on him when he's getting older and getting less effective is is bad business so if you can go and get somebody different if you can go and get a new striker um you can maybe you know pitch your pitch your tent in his camp and say you know well you're the goal scorer now you're our our new hope we, we had Aubameyang he did really well for us it's gone it's gone sour now um who who will take him in in January or the summer is another question but um because you know it's because of his money and his wages and all the rest of it and his age you're looking at that thinking who might come and get him but if somebody comes and gets him I think it's time for Arsenal to move on without him I think they've got the alternative already they've got Martinelli has been knocking on the door for a while now and he's just needed that opportunity to step up and he's looked really good for Arsenal when he has played for them in that 
striker role. And I think well, this season... He's been playing left like wing a... most of the time, though. But he played through the middle in the most recent game, didn't he? Where he scored, was it two or three he scored? I forget, but he certainly had a decent game. And I think this could be almost like a free hit for him. Because Aubameyang moves on. Arsenal don't replace him in January. Sees how Martinelli copes. Maybe Lacazette gets a move, gets a chance as well. But though it feels like he's going to move in the summer. But maybe Martinelli gets that opportunity to show what he can do. And then in the summer, if he hasn't stepped up, if he hasn't done what was expected of him, that's when you look for a new striker. That's when you look for your Aubameyang replacement, if he goes. I just think they need to be looking now. There must have been a turning point when it came to Aubameyang, whether it was when he signed his new contract or not. You know, there's a question over whether that was the moment in which it went downhill for him. But, you know, he's not turned into a bad player overnight, but it's to the point where his form is so questionable that they might need to get rid. Lacazette is going to leave in the summer. I mean, he's free to talk to new clubs from January. He's out of contract. Eddie Nketiah is not that good. And Martinelli's, I think, got a record of one in four, but he's very, very good in terms of potential, but this is Arsenal we're talking about. They're fourth at the moment. If they want to get into the Champions League, uh, let's say they do finish fourth at the end of the season, with a strike force of Martinelli and Nketiah, I mean, it's youth and faith in youth, which I appreciate, but I don't know if that's really going to stand them in. Instead, they need, they need something else. They need an option. Who that is, I don't know. But their next test anyway is to travel to Norwich on Boxing Day and face the Canaries at Carrow Road. From one side of North London to the other, let's talk about Tottenham Hotspur now, who face Crystal Palace in their game on the 26th. And they've much improved, actually, recently, um, particularly against Liverpool. They've got three games in hand over the top four. Do you think they'll be in the top four once they play those games in hand, Marley? Do you think from what we saw in that Liverpool game where it finished 2-2, we saw enough to convince us that they'll be finishing in the top four, either this season or at least once they've completed their games in hand? Um, I'm I'm very wary of predicting anything when it comes to Spurs because a lot of the time when things are set out in, in plain English and right in front of them for Spurs, like win your next three games and you're in the top four, they tend to just not do it. Um, I, think I remember a season or two ago, they had a, a similar situation where if they'd won like the last five games or something that have uh, that have been top of the league or going into the last part of the season or something. I can't remember what season it was. But they balled that up pretty quickly and the the whole Spursy um tag came back again. So I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't do it. Um but Conte is improving them and they do look a better team. Um they are starting to get a tune out of more players now and you're seeing uh, you're seeing improvements for definite but um I, I, I'd still you know, to to overcome that that sort of culture of of messing stuff up when it looks easier to to actually succeed. Um, I don't know where we are with Spurs yet, and they've still got the hurricane thing to deal with on its uh, on on the horizon. Um, and we'll have to see what how that plays out as well. Do you know what I just remembered? Um, a conversation I had with a Tottenham fan, maybe about four or even five years ago when Pochettino was first cranking them up and getting them to full tilt, which is no doubt the best we've seen from Tottenham in in the last probably 20 years, at least in my lifetime, that's the best Spurs team that there's been. The one under Pochettino that even made a Premier League title charge at one point and got to the Champions League final, of course. I remember having an argument with a Tottenham fan, Jim, about what defines success as a club. And he was going on about saying, you know, he was saying Tottenham are a far more successful club than Portsmouth. And I said, well, yeah, you probably are in terms of league position, but we've won more trophies than you and been to more cup finals than you in the last decade. So, you know, what determines success? And I think that's the case. It's almost like when Marley was talking about uh, Spurs there, it was if they do this, if they do that. When you talk about Man City and Liverpool and even Chelsea, you get a sense of inevitability. They will go on and do this. They will go on and do that. But with Tottenham, you just don't get that sense of authority where you can go, they definitely are going to win these games because even with an accomplished coach and one as successful as Antonio Conte has been, there's still that element of no guarantees with Spurs and that must be so frustrating for supporters. I mean, that's the negatives of their history, isn't it? In terms of they always seem to get right to the cusp of doing something and then it all just implodes and goes horribly wrong. And I think the whole idea of bringing Antonio Conte into this Spurs team is to change that and change that mentality. It's always been a self-fulfilling prophecy for Spurs players because there's no way 
in the 30, 40 years this has been Spurs' identity, there's no way that can kind of feed into the squad time and time again. So it's almost like they lack that self-belief that they the narrative is set that they're going to fail. So I think Conte has been brought in to mentally help them get over that block. And I think it's also the first time in a while you talk about that Pochettino team. I think with, under Pochettino, it was almost talent over system. And then they brought... Jose Mourinho in and the idea was that his system would excel over talent and I think it's Conte's job to kind of blend the two because we know he has the system we know he's an accomplished coach who's won stuff and he knows how to manage a football team and we also know there is a bit of talent in that Tottenham squad albeit they need serious upgrades in a lot of positions and I think it's that blend that will see Spurs achieve that success at some point all the criteria is there everything Spurs need to do well and become a top club in England are present they've got the stadium they've got the manager they've got the players they've got the fan base they've even got a little bit of cash as much as Daniel Levy would like you not to believe they have any cash they do have money to spend they do have a team that or a club that brings in a huge amount of revenue so there is money to spend when they need it and it feels like they're not that far away. But then again, we'd say they've not been that far away for a long time. But what does success look like for Tottenham? I think it looks like anything at the moment. I think it looks like a Carabao Cup. I think it looks like an FA Cup. It's whatever they can take. But getting that first piece of silverware is going to be so important for them as a football club. I think also top four. And now they've been dumped out of the Europa Conference League. Top four surely has to be their priority. I know everyone says it's got to be about winning a trophy, but... Um, with the way that things have gone for Tottenham and the way things financially could be going for them in terms of the money they've spent. We know how stringent Daniel Levy is. Finishing in the Champions League places would be massive for both the club and Antonio Conte. They welcomed Crystal Palace to Tottenham Hotspur Stadium on Boxing Day. Talking about success, what about West Ham, Marley? We know that they're a team with ambitions of finishing, albeit unlikely, in the Champions League places. Are they running out of steam, do you think? Do you think that maybe they're just starting to feel the effects of a sustained Champions League push? <laughs> Even just saying that, like a sustained Champions League push and West Ham in the same sentence is, is still baffling to me. Um, just with where they were and where they are now, uh, I'd, I'd still say a top eight finish is success for West Ham. Um, I think they'll get squeezed out of the... The certainly the top four um, and probably the top six. Maybe maybe they can finish sixth if you know Spurs get in fifth and Arsenal cling on to fourth. Um, you've got Man United in there as well, so you've got and Leicester probably coming back as well. So you're looking at them teams and there's a hell of a lot of competition there. Um, but West Ham, in terms of, I don't think they're running out of of steam. I just think they they've got a couple of injuries which aren't helping. Um, Antonio's gone a little bit cold. Um, needs to to get back into his his rhythm. Um, I don't think the Christmas period suits Antonio probably more than any player in the league because he's that uh, sort of susceptible to muscle injuries because he's got so much muscle on him that he's uh, he might struggle over Christmas. But you're looking at him and, and saying if he gets back into form and starts banging in a couple of goals here and there, then West Ham could could still upset that apple cart again. Um, I don't know whether they'll do it because I'm still the guy who won't put West Ham on his on his accumulator because I never know what they're going to do. They could easily <laughs> lose to, to Norwich or they could easily go and beat Chelsea or Liverpool like like when they beat Liverpool at, uh, at the London Stadium a few weeks ago. It's, uh, it's crazy. I can't yeah. quite work them out. So in terms of predictions no. for them, I, I, I'm struggling to, to settle on anything. Well, I can't work out any predictions for this game either I've just written in my notes erratic because you're right West Ham you kind of have far more consistency with them now than you used to but Southampton it's almost a case of you don't really know what you're going to get from them as well sometimes they play well but lose and sometimes they play terribly but win it's just a, a tough one to call this Jim I think between your boys and Southampton it is I'd like to think that West Ham have got enough for this game and all the things that Marley just listed are true. Antonio is off the ball at the moment. There are some key injuries of Bonger and Zuma. I think Cresswell might be coming back for this one, but there are injuries in key positions all across the team. But at the same time, the performances have still been decent, I think, so far. And we talked earlier about how Manchester United's postponed games may or may not help them because we don't know what kind of effect COVID 
has had on the camp, but there hasn't been the same impact on West Ham. Uh, despite their cancelled game against Norwich City, that was a problem in the Norwich City camp rather than the West Ham camp. So they should have fresh legs going into this. That said, I've heard rumours that there has been a recent COVID outbreak in the West Ham camp, so there might be a couple of absentees. Don't know who it is that's missing. But not enough to get but, the game called off, or we don't know that yet, obviously, when we're recording this. Well, but Well, we don't know what that mysterious percentage is, do we, either? We don't know exactly where that lies in terms of what percentage of injuries or absentees there needs to be or COVID cases there needs to be. But it feels like Southampton have struggled a lot this season. They've played well in a lot of games, but they don't seem to be able to hang on to that lead. Whereas I think West Ham have probably gone the opposite way. They've not lost a game by more than one goal so far this season. And they've had a bit of a knack of nicking wins when they need to as well. If you look back to the Chelsea game for example so I do fancy West Ham for this one so definitely don't put it on your acker because you can guarantee Southampton will win <laughs> well Pompey's game against Oxford is off on Boxing Day so I'm hoping for you to absolutely batter Southampton but the chances <laughs> are it's probably not going to happen because as we say a bit of a tough one to call that West Ham against Saints Boxing Day three o'clock still three more top flight games to get stuck into we'll do it after this here on Football Social Daily Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to the podcast. This is your Premier League preview for the games on Boxing Day. The festive fixture schedule will be in full tilt after Christmas with loads of games. There seems to be a game every couple of days and it all starts with the matches on Boxing Day, of which there are still three to preview here on the podcast. We'll start this section by talking about Burnley against Everton. Burnley, of course, have games in hand over their relegation rivals. Do you think that will suit Sean Dyche, Marley, or do you think he doesn't read too much into those sorts of things? Uh, Sean Dyche doesn't strike me as a, a type of guy who reads into this sort of, sort of stuff. Um, I feel like he's 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 very methodical in his in his approach and things like that. So I think he'll be approaching it as he does with every game. He'll be thinking, who do I put in this four four two system? Who do I uh, play up front with uh, with Chris Wood? Is it Corne or can Barnes come in or someone like that? But I feel like he doesn't make that many decisions over over his team because it tends to pick itself and his tactics pick himself. And he, if they're better than the opposition on the given day, they tend to get a get a result. But Everton come to Burnley needing a needing a result badly because like they beat Arsenal, then they've not had the uh, the best run since. It sort of went a bit backwards, losing to Palace, um, getting a good draw against Chelsea. They need to build on these these good results against Chelsea and Arsenal. Um, and and get something on the board because you know Rafa's always gonna be easily turned on um, at at Everton with the with his history and all the rest of it. So um, yeah, Burnley Burnley as well. Though Burnley need the result because even though I don't think Burnley, they don't think they're playing too badly. Like you sort of you're looking at Burnley and thinking that oh, corner has been great for them and and you know all that. And then you think you look at the table. And you think, how are they below Leeds? Like, you know, Leeds are playing awful, and Burnley are five points below them in the table. So, it's a strange, uh, it's a strange one because I don't think Burnley are playing as bad as someone like Leeds or even possibly Watford. But you know, they need the result to to stop them yeah. getting getting cut adrift of this uh, of this little relegation battle that's going on. Well, their first game in the new year on Sunday the 2nd is against Leeds at Ellen Road. Their next two are, of course, Everton on Boxing Day and Manchester United on Thursday the 30th of December. So in terms of their next three games, which won't make up for the games in hand that they have, but also will go a long way to helping their survival, could be massive for them. And Everton also desperate for the win, as Marley says. Jim, they managed to get a decent 1-1 draw against Chelsea recently, despite their poor form before that. But that seems a little bit pointless if they don't build on that result here against Burnley to prove that they've turned a corner because it feels like Benitez definitely does need to turn one. I don't think one draw counts as turning a corner, does it? Maybe it counts as like the first portion of a corner that they're turning round, but I don't think anything... Well, yeah, that, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's pointless if they don't build on that Chelsea result. They just... Yeah. What, what's the point of drawing with Chelsea if they don't beat Burnley? I mean, They've <laughs> put the indicator on. They just haven't turned the corner yet. Yeah, I think, that, <laughs> I think that's it. And it, I've not seen anything from 
Everton over the last few weeks that convinces me that they can push on up the table. I mean, this game just feels like a god-awful game of football, doesn't it? Everton versus Burnley. It's it's difficult to see how anyone other than diehard Everton and Burnley fans will be paying any attention to this. It's got last on match of the day written all over it because neither team offer very much going forward. Like Marley says, Corne's been decent for Burnley. He's scored some spectacular goals and he's a very un-Burnley-like player who has been taken to the hearts of the Burnley fans. But when he hasn't played, Burnley have looked short of ideas. And likewise for Everton, when they've been lacking, we've talked about Dominic Calvert-Lewin a lot, but when they've been lacking Richarlison as well, they've looked desperately short of ideas. So yeah, Benitez does need to kick on because it's going to turn sour for him very, very quickly in Liverpool if he doesn't start winning games because we know the history there. We know the fans had concerns about his appointment before it was even made. And I think if he continues to drop points, that's going to become really hateful and vicious inside Goodison Park. And it'll be interesting to see how long he can sustain his position there. How long can he continue once the fans turn properly against him? And a loss against a team like Burnley is only going to exacerbate that problem. But I don't think we saw enough against Chelsea, a depleted Chelsea team, because they had injuries and they had COVID cases to suggest that they were going to they'd found a solution to what their problems were so far. Burnley against Everton, three o'clock on Boxing Day. Wolves against Watford takes place at the same time at Molyneux. Wolves are very tight in terms of letting in goals and they're tough to play against as well under Bruno Large. On the other hand, Watford absolutely desperate for points, but they're really, really leaky. So Wolves don't score many and Watford concede a lot. Much like West Ham against Southampton probably wasn't on your betting slip, Marley. I doubt this one will be as well because... Even though the form suggests Wolves should win, I think with the statistics, it's probably slightly harder to call. Um, yeah, I, yeah, because Watford are are capable of, of of you know turning up and and scoring a few goals. Like they, I think the away uh, win at uh, Goodison Park was massive. I think it's five two in the end, wasn't it? Uh, they put four past Man United. So when they when they tend to click they can they can score a few goals and and look like a decent team but i think it's their defensive issues are a little bit uh worrying but wolves haven't scored that many goals either so you're looking at that thinking this you know you mentioned burnley everton might be last time the, the two games we're talking about next wolves and watford and then brighton brentford i think they're all down there as well in this mix of of things because they seem like tight games wolves and watford um you know i can i, I th- I would back Wolves to win it because I feel like they're they're more sort of methodical than Watford and a little bit more um, consistent than Watford. But it could it could go either way this because I don't think either team are uh, sort of what's the word sort of like favourites for it with the way they play. I think Watford could turn up and and find a breakthrough. I think Wolves could could easily sort of keep them at arm's length if they if they defend well enough and and build on the the performance against Chelsea where they they kept Chelsea out relatively easily. So this could uh, this could go either way for me. Yeah, I definitely think this one's close to cool. Um even though the form suggests that Wolves should win this pretty easily, Watford have won more games than the majority of the rest of the teams down there fighting with them. I think they've won four times this season and they've been impressive victories at that against the likes of Man United and Everton. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on because I I've got a brilliant stat about Wolves over Christmas because they have the most advantage of any team during the Christmas schedule because they have the most gaps between any of the teams that are playing three games over the festive period. So their three games are spread over 197 hours, which is 59 hours more than Newcastle, who have the most intense Christmas festive period. So I just thought I'd drop that stat in there. So Wolves should do better over the festive period because they have more recovery time. Thanks for that, Jim. Moving on, Brighton against Brentford, the final (laughs) game of the festive uh, fixture preview that we're doing here on Football Social Daily. Um, Possibly the most League One Premier League game of all time between these two sides, Brighton and Hove Albion against Brentford, two teams who play decent football. They're dead level on points in mid-table. There's not much else to say other than that, really. Marley, this is probably the least attractive of all the games we've got on Boxing Day. Yeah, I think... uh... You know, eight PM on Boxing Day night, uh, you'll be 
you know, on a in a sort of turkey coma, uh, having it at bubble and squeak all all Boxing Day. You've probably been through thirty six carry, yeah, thirty six cans of beer and two bottles of spirits, <laughs> and you look at what's on TV and you think Brighton versus Brentford or like the EastEnders Christmas special. Like you'd be like, yeah, EastEnders, this is this is for me, because um, I I don't think I'd be too turned on by watching Brentford and Brighton trying. It's like two two fellas wearing. Uh, pillows on the fists trying to knock each other out like it just Brentford don't seem to score many goals uh Brighton as we talk about they're very they're very sexy in the in the first two thirds of the pitch then they get to the final third and they just turn to turn to mush they tend to just waste chances left right and center and I just can't see this one being um a, a great game I, you know Brighton are, I think they're winless in 11 or 12 games now and that's that's massive. Like they started the season, you know, talk fans were talking about Europe at, at one point, and it was like, yeah, you're joking. You're seven games in, and then now you. Well, you're they booed 15. Graham Potter after that game against Leeds, didn't they? Oh, well, they booed Jesus. the team, which was just, I can't get over that. Yeah, I'm surprised that that wasn't made more of. Let's just say. Well, that's with with respect to Brighton. I think that's because nobody really cares about Brighton. They're, they're kind of a forgettable club in in terms of the the Premier League um sort of status of all the clubs if that makes sense. Like they're not a very they're not massively well supported. They're not they don't have, you know, players who you would be queuing up to sign. Um Basuma possibly the the slight exception to that. I'm just not sure what they bring that makes people care about Brighton. Like they're sort of, like I said, they're a pretty little team and they, they do, they play nice football, but they don't produce at the end of it. And if, if they did produce, they would turn into like one of these sort of hipster teams that everybody loves. And you remember how we think about, um, you know, Bolton back in the day when they had that uh, team of like Campo and Hierro and all them sort of iconic. <laughs> Jager, icon- gotcha. Yeah. Did they gotcha. have Michelle Salgado or was that Blackburn? That was Blackburn. Oh, sorry, but, shouldn't really but I, I was actually going to mention. <laughs> I was actually going to mention Blackburn because remember Blackburn had like Rocky Santa Cruz and Morton Camps Pedersen and people like that, and they they were good for a couple of years, and it was because they could give teams a bloody a bloody nose on the day and stuff like that. I feel like Brighton could be that if they could finish, and they just can't, and that all they've got is a, a manager who tries to to get them. You know that he's done. He's done the hard work. Like he's made them play this nice football, possession-based, quick tempo, high pressing, all the stuff you want from a from a watchable team. But he watches on every week as Neil Morpé sticks one in in the stands every every uh, you know twenty minutes or something like that. So I feel like this game could could again go either way. You can't realistically say Brighton are going to win this game because they haven't won any of the last eleven games, and then you've got Brentford who can perform greater than the sum of their parts, but also can roll over and concede really silly goals. So, again, I don't really know how this one's going to go, but if if I had to back anyone, I'd probably back the draw. They feel like very similar teams, don't they? In terms of they're both teams that, I mean, Brighton fans won't thank me for this, that are punching above their weight in the Premier League. Both had good starts to the season and have kind of trailed off a little bit because, I mean... They both were looking impressive in the first four, five games of the season. Brighton had some really good momentum and that momentum included them beating Brentford in the return leg. But if you look at the fixtures that are coming, it's so much more important that Brentford get the point here because in the coming weeks, they've got Manchester City, Aston Villa, Liverpool, Wolves, Manchester City again, Crystal Palace, then Arsenal. And that takes them up to the end of February. So there's not a huge amount of points up for grabs in those games, you would have thought. So if you go, who's the game more important to in this instance, then Brentford are the ones that desperately need some points. Well, there we go. That's that. Brighton against Brentford, our final Premier League game previewed on today's Football Social Daily preview show. It is Christmas Eve. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful time tomorrow with your friends and families. Or if you don't celebrate, just enjoy the holiday period in what's been a difficult year for everyone. So 
Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for subscribing. And if you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you do hit that button or follow or whatever it is on whichever platform you listen to this show on. And don't forget also, you can check out loads of great other sport podcasts on our network, the Sport Social Podcast Network. You can find it on sport-social.co.uk. And when you get to the website, just click the podcast tab at the top of the page and that will take you to a whole raft of great new shows, including... Simon Hughes, the analyst, his cricket podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network, although it has been pretty grim, the cricket at the moment, but there is the Boxing Day test, the famous Boxing Day test, which starts at the Melbourne Cricket Ground on Boxing Day, or in fact, it's Christmas Day evening here in the UK. Both Simons, Simon Hughes and Simon Mann will be with you on hand on the podcast to talk you through all of the action taking place down under. So that's it. Anything to add, Jim, before we uh, clock off for Christmas? For Steve Navidad. I don't know what language that was, but it definitely wasn't Spanish. <laughs> Decent attempt. What about you, Marley? That was that was Jimish. Um, I'll, <laughs> I'll say... Luke, you've heard my pronunciation over the last 12 months of various languages and various players. I don't, think, I don't know why you'd be surprised that I'd butcher that. No one, no one is surprised that you butchered that. Um, I think he was trying to say Feliz Navidad. Um, so I'm just going to say that so yeah Merry Christmas <laughs> Merry Christmas everyone this has been Football Social Daily enjoy your Christmas time and we'll speak to you the other side of Christmas Day Football Social Daily subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode With the Lucky Land Slots you can get lucky just about anywhere This is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.